Praise the Lord. Uh, I bring you greetings from my wife and my wonderful family uh, from here in the U.S. Uh, I just want to thank our lovely uh, sister Mabel and our wonderful anointed steward for this great initiative to uh, share some thoughts on marriage and also, you know, learn a lot of things from, you know, others as well. And the Lord bless us so much. Uh, today we begin our series on the Marriage Marathon. And I'm built to speak on how to build a godly marriage. How do you build a godly marriage? And I want to um, first start with a prayer. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We know that we are blessed because we are your children. And thank you that your strength is our portion, even in this journey. Uh, marriage is your idea. And we thank you that you have given us the grace to be able to do marriage and also to have a successful one. We thank you for your wisdom. Give us understanding and reach us in every way as we go through this series. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Um, we thank God so much. So I'm speaking on how to build a godly marriage. How to build a godly marriage. And I've divided it into three sections. Um, the first one is, um, what is a godly marriage? What is a godly marriage? When we talk about godly marriage, what do we mean by that? And then the second is, what are the characteristics of a godly marriage? And then the final one is, what are some of the ingredients of a godly marriage? Um, so it's important that we understand that marriage is God's idea and not man's idea. And um, man did not create himself, God created man. And the Bible says that, and God saw Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And in the scripture, that is um, the first place where we see the vision of marriage um, in, in the whole of the Bible. And if we go to um, Genesis chapter 2, um, I'd like to read from, uh, let's say maybe from verse 15. Um, Genesis chapter 2 from verse 15 and i want to lay a foundation and then i'll talk about what I, what i believe a godly marriage um is it says and the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to dress and to keep it and the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eat thereof, you shall surely die. And then verse 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. He says, It is not good that man should be alone. This is God's vision. This is God's idea. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. So marriage did not originate from us. As much as, you know, we, we have been endowed with divine abilities, the concept of marriage, the idea of marriage is divine. 
Now, since the source of marriage is divine, it means that marriage by its design and by its nature ought to be godly. Of course, it's not always so. It's not so, but that is how it should be. Because it wasn't the man who decided that, okay, my association with the woman should be called marriage. It was God who did that. And in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 28, uh, verse 18, the Lord is saying that it is not good for a man to be alone. And he says, I will make him an helper. So that even itself reveals that in the relationship, the coming together of the couple is done by God. Now, every man grows up in an environment where there are many women, and he could marry any of them if he wanted to marry any of them. But there's a case to be made for why he settled for that particular woman. As speaking as a man, the, when I was growing up, my from my teenage years, you know, coming to my 20s, even to, to come like this on uh, KNUSA campus, there were a lot of young women that I greatly loved, I greatly admired, and would have loved and wished even to marry, many of them. Some were older than me, some were my age, and some were younger than me. But I always ask myself a question, why did I settle on my wife? Why? Why of all the women? And I don't think I see any of those women more godly than my wife. They, are, they were beautiful, they were Christian, they were spirit-filled, they were anointed, they were dutiful, they were resourceful, just as my wife is. But the question is, why did I choose on my wife? Why did I settle on my wife? And Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 reveals that. It says, I will make him a helper, meet for him. So it means that it wasn't a, a man deciding, it wasn't a decision of a man, but it was the decision of God. And it was God who brought the two together. And it was God's idea. So God made us. And then men. And then the Lord guided our hearts. And led us to choose the woman that we are married to. You know, Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says something very sweet. It says, for it is God who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. In Adam's case, how the Lord brought his wife was that the Lord put him to sleep, took you know, a rib out of his side, and the Bible says, out of that rib, he formed the woman and presented the woman to Adam. And Adam said, now this is the bone of my bone, and this is the flesh of my flesh. She will be called a woman because she was taken out of a man. And then Adam goes on to say, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the concept and the idea of marriage is, re is rolled out even in the first book of uh, what they call it, the Bible, that is the book of Genesis. But the interesting thing for our dispensation is that the women have been created already. So how are we joined together? How are we brought together? And that is what Philippians chapter 2 um, verse 13 says, it is, For it is God who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He who was the originator of marriage, he who was the source of marriage, God Almighty has a purpose. Even the creation of Adam, the Bible says he took him in, in Genesis 2 verse 15, he took him from the garden. He took him, he, he put him in the garden, he says to dress it and to keep it. There was a purpose 
And he made a helper, which is his wife Eve, to come and help with that purpose. In much the same way, everyone who is in our dispensation, who is married, who is a believer, there is a purpose for your union. And since the purpose is there, then it means that God must bring two people to fulfill that purpose. And so he gives the vision to the man, but then he also works in the heart of the man to desire a particular woman. So he works in us to will and to desire, it says, of his good pleasure. That is to desire according to what pleases him. There is a purpose and a plan of God for every marriage. Every marriage has a purpose. Every marriage has a plan from the Father. And how the Lord brought the two together was that he worked in the man's heart. Or he worked things together to join them together. And so that's like in, in, in the beginning as I was speaking, there, are so, there were so many women. But why one? Why that person? In my case, why Patricia? It could be many women. It could have been any. But there was a working in my heart towards, you know, my wife. And because of that working, I settled on her as the Lord has decided. And so what am I, am I saying by this? What I'm saying by this is that marriage is not a man's idea. Marriage is God's idea. And if marriage is God's idea, then marriage ought to be godly because the purpose of the marriage is not man. The, 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 the bringing to coming together of the two people is not man, but it is God. So it's God's idea. It's the Lord's vision. It's the Lord's intention. And indeed, it's the Lord's purpose. The basis of marriage is that marriage is God's idea and not man's idea. On the basis of this introduction, one will ask, so what is a godly marriage? When you say a marriage is godly, what do we mean by that? And it's a very simple definition. A godly marriage is a God-centered marriage. A godly marriage is a union of two people brought together by the Father. A godly marriage is a Christ-centered marriage. It means that it's a marriage that has God, or in our case, Christ, as the foundation, number one. Two, it's a marriage that aspires to build on the foundation with Christ-like materials. In other words, the Word of God, which is the source of all the material that we need to build the marriage, becomes the center of the marriage. One thing that you learn about why there is this um, upsurge of divorce cases in marriages in our day is very simple. You, when you counsel, uh, counsel, counsel couples and listen, you find out that there is a disintegration of a common authority. What I mean by that is that there is an overarching authority over the marriage. But you see that the people don't submit to that authority anymore. And because they don't submit to that authority anymore, what binds them and what holds them disintegrates. And invariably, the marriage breaks down. In our case, the overarching authority is God who has revealed his mind about the union through his word. And so the building blocks of every godly marriage is what the word of God says. So a godly marriage is a marriage that is founded on the word or founded on Christ, founded on the word. And it's a marriage that is, um, what do you call it? The organization of the marriage 
the workings of the marriage, how the marriage comes about and is executed, the marital contract is executed, is according to the prescriptions and the provisions of God's holy word. It means that if you are a believer, the, the ideas that guides the marriage is not what psychologists say. It's not what is culturally acceptable. It's not what is politically correct. It's not what society... Uh, due to its evolution or its progress, accepts. But for the believer, it is what the word of God says. So a godly marriage is a marriage that is built on the word, defined by the word, executed by the word. And that is what a godly marriage is. And I may add that since there is an original purpose of God concerning every union, a godly marriage is also the marriage that is seeking to pursue that purpose. And to bring that purpose to pass. And it's so important that we understand that. Because when you miss these things, it becomes deeply troubling and deeply worrying. So that is on the uh, first bullet point of what is a godly marriage. And it's a marriage that is founded on God, founded on Christ, founded on God's word. And the execution of the marriage is defined completely by God's word. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe from 21 to 25, the Bible talks about submission, talks about the man submitting to the woman and the woman submitting to the man. And then when it goes on further, it talks about you know the woman submitting to the man and the man loving his wife. When you look at the context of the scripture, all he's saying is that let Christ... Be the head in the marriage. Let Christ be the goal in the marriage. How all of you are turned, all of you must be turned and all of you must be submitted to the Lord. You know, and once you do that, it says everything flows into the unit. Before he said, let's go to Ephesians chapter. Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Let's see the scripture there. 21. 21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The overarching authority in the union is God. And so if both are submitted to it, then we the, the, the job is like half done. Maybe more than half, 90% done. Because if I fear God and my wife fears God, all the challenges that come, all the temptations that come, will not be a much of a problem because our response will be the way God wants us to. That is, our desire will be to please God even in the union. And because of that, we will continue to be in that unit. If we fear God, our desire will not be to hurt the other partner. If we fear God, our passion will not be to, be to fulfill our personal desires. If we fear God, we will ensure that because it's marriage is God's idea, everything that we do will become one, will be in unity, and will be in submission to what the Word of God says. And that's very, very important in terms of what a godly uh, marriage is. So I'll, I'll pause and I'll talk about the next one, uh, the next bullet point. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, God bless us. So this is the second uh, part. And we looked at the first part, we looked at what is a godly marriage. And the second part, we are looking at what are the characteristics of a godly marriage. 
and um, I'll go through some scriptures uh, that will just support some four points that I have identified as the characteristics of a godly marriage. And the third part will be uh, what are some of the ingredients of a godly marriage. And <clears throat> I believe that as we listen, you know, the Lord will uh, bless us. And then if we have opportunities to ask questions or contributions, uh, we can all learn from that interaction. Okay, so what are the characteristics of a godly marriage? I think we define the godly marriage to be a marriage that is built on Christ. And then, you know, the foundation is Christ. And then the building blocks are also Christ. In other words, a marriage that is built on the Word. And then the compositions of the marriage, the execution of the marriage, is also Word-centered. And it's so important that, you know, as believers, we understand these things. Because society is trying very hard to take our minds and our attention from uh, what is expected of us in terms of marriage. It's redefining all the pillars of marriage. And it's so, so concerning these days that, you know, the, the sudden um, occurrence of modernism and what do you call it, this new age phenomenon is eating into the church. And we tend to pay attention more on the aesthetics, the physical, more than we do on actually the substance of, of marriage. And that's a big problem. And so uh, it's concerning, okay? But let's look at the characteristics of a godly marriage. When you say a godly marriage, uh, what are some of the characteristics? And the first one I've put here is that a godly marriage is a holy union. It's a holy union. And in, in it's so important that uh, we cannot run away from that fact. And the mere reason is that many a times... You know, the things that we hold on to, the things that we believe, the value system that we possess are not born out of the word. And if that is the case, you realize that the union or the marriage is not a holy one. Uh, when you talk about holiness, uh, you are not necessarily talking about sinlessness. You are talking about a separation and a consecration unto the Father. Sin is one of them. I mean, so separation, separating from the world, and then consecrated unto the Father. Meaning that living strictly according to what God says, or what will make God happy. In other words, we possess a certain nature, and if we are holy, we'll live according to that nature. If we fail to live according to who we are, there is a big problem, and we can't say we are holy. Uh, let's look at some scriptures. First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And the Bible says something very interesting there. It's a common scripture that we, we, we know, uh, but I want to shed more some light on it. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And the Bible says, It says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, it's so important that um, holiness does not exist alone. So holiness is not just uh, not doing what is unacceptable. There's a reference point for holiness, and that is God. And so he says, be holy. Then he says, for I am holy. So it means that the reason, the basis for our pursuit of holiness is because he is holy. He didn't say because my ways are holy. He didn't say because I stand for holiness. He says because I am holy. 
meaning the intrinsic nature of God is holy. And so when he gave us his spirit, which is which proceeded out of himself, we call his spirit the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is, is a spirit that comes from him, the Father. So when you are talking about holiness, you are referencing the very nature of God. So when you are talking about a holy union, you are talking about a union that reflects the character of God, a union that reflects the nature of God, a, a union that, that lives in direct alignment with who God is. So if you are, the marriage is going to be holy, then we must live as those who are sons and daughters of God, those who possess the nature of God. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. So it means that love is a given in every marriage because you can't pursue holiness without love. So a holy union or that does not have love in it is not a holy union. Or a union of marriage that does not have love as its center, it cannot say that it's a godly marriage because love is also the nature of God. So holiness must define the marriage, which means that we must live according to what the Word of God says. Holiness must define our sex lives. Holiness must define our relationship with one another. When we fail to do that, there is always going to be chaos. There is always going to be confusion. How do we have a holy union? We have a holy union when we live according to the prescriptions of God's holy Word. When we wake up, what does the word say about how you should relate to your wife? You know, when we are in, in, in that unit, the word defines what you do. Not what your friends say, not what is popular, not what is society, so socially acceptable. But what does the Bible say about your relationship with your wife? In fact, it's so interesting that the Bible talks about how men ought to treat their wives, else their prayers will be hindered. So in other words, the Bible defines how a man should treat his wife. If you're a man and if you're a woman and we are in the context of marriage, the Bible defines how the woman relates to the man and the Bible defines how the man relates to the woman. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, uh, 22, 23, going, the Bible says the woman must submit to the man and the man must love his wife as Christ loved the church. So it means that even in the context of the definition of marriage, the standard is Christ. And that is what makes the union holy. When a woman fails to submit, then we can't say that a union is holy. When a man fails to love, we can't say that the union is holy. Meaning that we are living in direct opposite to the nature of God or the prescriptions of God which are outlined in his word. Holiness is important. When we fail the first test of holiness, the whole marriage crumbles and disintegrates. So we need to be very, very careful. A godly marriage is, number one, a holy union. It's a marriage that sin has no place in it. It's a marriage that selfishness has no place in it. It's a marriage that bitterness has no place in it. Now, although all these things look like it's difficult to do, yes, it's not difficult to do if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to be our guide in the union. For example, why did you get married if you were not going to love the woman, if you're not going to love the man? So then it means that it shouldn't be difficult to be holy because you already love the person. 
It should be difficult to live as the Bible prescribes because you already love the person. And that's so, 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 you know, important. The, the foundation for holiness is the fear of God. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, uh, it says, that Having therefore these precious promises, it says, uh, Having therefore these precious promises, let us perfect holiness out of the fear of God. It says, Let us move away, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, and let us perfect holiness because we fear God. So it means that the man must fear God and the woman must also fear God. In fact, that is the basis of a successful marriage because if the man doesn't fear God and the woman doesn't fear God, there is, there is going to be utter chaos and confusion. And that is something that we do not want. So fear, fearing God simply means that being obedient to God's word and giving God a reverential place in your marriage. Meaning that when, when the word of God speaks, you respond to everybody, every one of us in the union submits to what the word says. That is their true proof that we fear God. And it's so important that we understand um, these things. So, so, so very important. So, a godly uh, marriage is a holy union. The second thing is that a godly marriage is a growing union. It's a growing The second point on... Um, the characteristics of a godly marriage is a godly marriage is a growing union. So the first one is that it's a holy union, and the second one is that it's a growing union. Everything that God makes, if you read the book of Genesis very well, everything, every living thing that God created must grow, it must increase. And if you understand um, how human nature works, you are born, you are a baby, you grow, you increase to become, let's say, a toddler, an, um, an adolescent, and then you become an adult. So it's just, it should be the same with every union. Every marriage must grow. In fact, one clear sign that a marriage is heading for divorce is when the marriage is not growing. When a marriage is not growing, this is a clear sign, a clear red flag that there is a big problem and something is missing somewhere. So the first one is that it's a holy union. The second one is that it is a growing union. Every marriage must grow. Every marriage must increase. Every marriage must grow. The love must grow. The, the passion must grow. Everything must improve. The, the proverbial uh, comparison that is made is that marriage should be like wine. You see, wine, when you make wine very fresh, it's, it's sweet, but as the wine ages, it becomes sweeter and sweeter. Or when it ages, the taste becomes more refined. And because it becomes more refined, it tastes better. And the connoisseurs of wine tasting will tell you that if the wine is very old, then the wine is very rich in taste. So in the same way with marriage, we must grow. If you are not growing, there's a big, big, big problem. And if, if you are going to grow in, in the marriage or in the union, it should happen in uh, three different areas. Three different areas. Uh, so we'll look at those three different areas. And the first is spiritually, and the second is emotionally, and the third is materially or financially. And it's so important. Let's look at the spiritual one. Let's go to Colossians um, chapter 2. Um, verse 7, Colossians 2, 7. 
Uh, Colossians 2, 7, the Bible says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught by him. It says, abounding therein in thanksgiving. It says, rooted in and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. What does it say? It teaches us that you know we are we should be rooted in Christ, we should be built up in him, we should be established in the faith as we have been taught. In other words, the agency for being becoming rooted and built up and becoming established is to be taught. You see, a case is always made that the best thing that married couples can do together is to grow spiritually together. And that means that, you know, if I am trying to grow up spiritually alone, I can do it, but there's a limit to how I can push myself. But if I have another person by me, then we can encourage each other, and then we can push each other ahead, and then we can go very far. The Bible says that um, two, when two work together, they get a good or a better reward for their work. So that means that if we are both working towards growing spiritually, then it means that we'll, the end results will be greater than if each and every one of us were doing it individually. So every marriage must grow spiritually. It means that the prayer lives of the couple must become enriched. It must increase. The results you get for your prayer life should be more. In other words, in praying for your children, you should see the results of prayer. In other words, in praying for others, you see the results of your prayer. The, a, 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 a couple who are growing spiritually together, one clear sign is that the one will always testify that since I got married, and since I married my husband, since I married my wife, my prayer life has improved. My hunger for God's word has increased. That is a sign that the marriage is growing. And so one area that we always have to watch is I have to make sure that we are growing spiritually. It's so, so important. A lot of the times we put it at the back burner and we become concerned with the remaining two. But the spiritual is the foundation. If the spiritual is weak, the foundation will crumble. There are many marriages which are going through difficult situations because the couples do not have any meaningful spiritual life eat together and they don't have any meaningful spiritual life at all. But the greatest goal of the union should be to grow spiritually because every blessing that comes out of the union will originate from the spiritual growth of the marriage. So it's very, very important. The man must inspire the woman to get deeper in the word and in prayer. The woman must inspire the man to get deeper in the word and to get deeper in prayer. If these things are not happening, the marriage is not growing spiritually. Amen. And then we have emotionally, emotionally, and that's very important. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 15. 1 Timothy 4, 15. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. This is an admonition that Paul gave to Timothy, and we can learn lessons from it. He says, meditate upon these things. Now, meditation is uh, focused thinking. In other words, fix your gaze and fix your eyes on these things. He says, give yourself wholly. In other words, don't let yourself be given to any other thing but the thing that is in front of you that your mind is focused on. It says, 
then your profiting will appear to all. In other words, the results, the, the, the blessings in, in meditating and giving yourself wholly to it will become evident. What am I saying? Emotionally, it means that we must keep our eyes focused on our partner, our eyes focused on our wife, our eyes focused on our husbands. One of the things I always say is that many people are more concerned about the marriage than they are concerned about the person that they are married to. And so you find out that they are quick to say, let's go, uh, let's, let, let's, let's do, let's go to this marriage seminar. Let's, let's do this about marriage. Me, I'm praying for my marriage. Me, so the marriage, 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 it, everything's about the marriage, but they forget that they are married to a person and they forget to focus on the person who is in front of them. I will say that one of the secrets to a successful marriage is to lose sight of the marriage and to have the person you are married to to become the center of your attention. If you notice the person more than the fact that you are married, you realize that everything flows naturally. In other words, your desire is to please the person you are married to. When you wake up in the morning, what must I do to make my wife happy? What must I do to make my wife smile? What must I do to brighten her day? Can I go and give her a kiss? Can I you know, go and massage her? What words must I choose to, to, to make her happy? When the person becomes the center and the focus, that marriage is going to be truly blessed. So emotionally, it's so important. The reason why many people are into these emotional affairs and marriage are suffering, <coughs> sorry, there's emotional immaturity and everything, is because... Many take their eyes off their wives. Many take their eyes off their husbands. Some consider on the marriage and things to do to keep the marriage. And some focus more, if, or some also others, they are distracted. The best way to increase emotionally is to engage your partner in fruitful conversations and honest conversations. Meaning that you, when you are communicating, you don't hide anything. You, you freely express yourself. And the partner also freely expresses themselves. What happens when you do it that way is that the bonds become stronger because the person can trust you with the contents of their soul and you can also trust them with the contents of your soul. That is what goes on within and as you keep exchanging, as you keep exchanging, the bonds become stronger and stronger and you grow emotionally. And that's how come sometimes you, need, you, you realize that couples get to a point where they can predict each other. You know, oh, my wife will like this. My wife will do this. My wife will move this way. How did that happen? It means they are growing up emotionally. If after years of marriage, you cannot guess what your wife will say about issues, your wife's opinion about issues, what the, your wife likes or dislikes about things around you, then you are, it's a clear sign that you are not growing emotionally. How you do that is by focusing on your wife, giving yourself wholly to the person. Meaning, pay attention to the person's needs. Pay attention to the person's words. What you say that excites the person, keep saying it. What you say that, you know, makes the person interested or worry or, you know, disengage or angry or whatever, you don't say those things. Highlight the strengths and diminish those weaknesses. And before you realize, the two of you have grown to become a unit and you are growing up emotionally. It's so important. It's so important that that happens. And the third and the last part of growing, it's a growing union, is that you increase physically. And there's, it has to be growth in your lives. 
physically. There has to be growth financially. There has to be growth, you know, in the, in the sense of the content or the substance of what God has called you to do. There are some people who are married and they don't invest in their partners. They don't, you know, do things that will increase them. For, for example, when you married your wife, she was at a certain level of education. What have you contributed for her to increase in that level? What has been your contribution? What has been your encouragement? The same thing with the man. When you married your, your husband, he was at this level. A clear sign of a growing union is that there's an increase physically as well, not only spiritually and emotionally, but physically. That is that you are motivating one another or each other to grow or to increase. Even in a physical sense, in the terms of education, in terms of knowledge, in terms of you know life experiences, the person must become a better person than you met the person. Because marriage is like a seed that God is sowing and it must grow, it must increase. And as it grows and as it increases, it becomes a big tree that begins to benefit everyone. I'll talk about fruitfulness um, the next one on the, the next two. So we need to understand that you must contribute towards the growth of your wife. She must also contribute towards your growth. If after marriage for many years, you have not increased in your education, the job that you are doing you are at the same level, nothing has changed. There is a big problem. And how you fix that is to sit down as a couple and ask yourself questions. What can we do to grow? You know, if you are going to school, what can we do to gain more knowledge in this aspect of my life to increase so that, you know, you can increase physically as well. Another aspect of increase is financial. It is the desire of God when you read Third John chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Meaning that God wants each and every one of us to increase, to grow, to prosper, to enlarge. He doesn't want us to become stagnant and stay at one place. You know, materially, he wants us, in terms of our health, he wants us to prosper. If when you're married and your husband has certain health issues, if you're a wife, that becomes your burden. You must find ways to cook so that, you know, his health will improve as he goes along, not get worse. You know, this is all part of the physical growth um, that the Bible, you know, is encouraging us. And of course, materially as well, financially. You know, the two officials should, should come together and find ways you can save and invest so that the marriage can increase. Because where God is taking you, you cannot be at the same level of financial prosperity to be able to execute your purpose at a very high level. It's so, so, so important. So the marriage must grow, but it must grow spiritually, it must grow emotionally, and it must grow materially as well. God bless you so much. The third point is that of, a, of the characteristics of a godly marriage. Okay, so the first one was it's a holy union. The second one is that it's a growing union. And the third one, sorry, is that it is a purpose-driven union. It's a purpose-driven union. You know, in that my description of a godly marriage, one of the things I talked about is that God is a source of the marriage. And if God is a source, then there is ultimately a purpose for every union. Now, this is something that the two of you must believe in. If you are... In fact, we are Christians, so I'll say it. The Lord does not put two people together for the fun of it. It's not because that he wants to cure your uh, maybe desire for se your, our sexual appetite that he put the two of us together. No, ultimately, 
That is important, but there is a grander purpose for every union. And so the marriage must be purpose-driven. It's so important that we understand these things because, you know, if we don't have that mindset of it being purpose-driven, i.e. we are not seeking God to find the purpose of our union, what is going to happen is that we are going to look at the world and how the world does things, and we are going to assume that, oh, this is marriage, so it's for every... How the world does marriage, that is how we also should do marriage. But that will be very wrong because there is a purpose for a union. God does not do things by heart. If everybody who is on the earth has a purpose, then every marriage on the earth has a purpose. In fact, we must have that faith. We must have that understanding. And so when that is the case, what happens is that we begin to pursue that purpose. We begin to, you know, discipline ourselves in order, in order to accomplish that purpose. You know, if you don't have a purpose-driven mindset, you live anyhow. You know, Miles Moreau will say that, if you don't know where you are going, any road will lead you there. In other words, if you are purpose-driven, there, there are things you do, places you go, you know, things you accept and things you don't accept. You, are not, you don't belong to the general class. You walk a, a particular way. You talk a particular way. There are things that you do which are different from the other people because they, they don't believe. They don't know where they are going. But the question the Lord wants me to ask is that what is the purpose of your union? What do you believe is the key reason why the Lord brought the two of you together? For some people, it might, it might be some aspect of ministry. Some people may be in the ministry itself, you know, becoming a pastor, pastoral ministry. For some people, it may be an itinerant ministry. It may be to concentrate on making marriage, you know, work. That's a, that could be a purpose for the Lord bringing the two of you together. For some, it may be a business the Lord wants you to establish so that you can help build, you know, the kingdom. For some people, they, they may, they, they, they might have been together for them to become teachers so that through that through that, they can influence the next generation, you know, for the kingdom. There is always a grander purpose for a marriage and a union. Let's see some examples in the scriptures. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Um, Genesis 2, 15. Um, let's see um, God's mind in terms of union, in terms of purpose. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man. So if you are paying attention, you, you notice that it was, after God had made the man, man was a free moral agent. He, he made man. He found man for the dust of the ground that he made man. Man was still free. He could have done whatever he wanted. But the Bible says it was God who took the man and it was God who put the man in the garden. The garden here is symbolic of purpose. So God took man and placed man in the garden. And God made Eve in the garden. God made Adam out of the garden. So I always say that's why sometimes maybe we are different in terms of emotions and in terms of many things. Because the man was formed with materials that were ragged, materials that were raw, materials because he was made outside the garden. But the woman was made in the garden. In other words, the ambience or the environment that the woman was made was a cultured environment. It was an atmosphere of beauty. It was an atmosphere of pleasure. It was an atmosphere of peace and prosperity. And so that sometimes that is my uh, reasoning that 
what accounts for the difference between men and women. That's why men are, you know, giddy giddy ragged because how we were formed was outside the garden, in the wild, where all the animals were watching. <laughs> but when Adam was made, it was uh, when Eve was made, it was in the garden, and Eve was taken out of Adam. So Eve was more refined than Adam. So that's why women are delicate, they are sensual, they are. Uh, they, very, they pay attention to detail because that is how they were made. The ambience, the environment within which they were made was that way. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that God is a God of purpose. And so he took the man from the garden, uh, from the, the, where he had made him, and placed man in the garden. And the garden is symbolic of purpose. But then he says, to dress it and to keep it. He took the man put the man within his purpose, number one, to work it, other versions say to attend, to tend it, to work it, and to preserve it. In other words, there are two ways that we, we, we fulfill the purpose that God has given to our union. Number one, we work it, we execute it, and number two, we preserve it. And when a marriage is not purpose-driven, oh my God, that is where there's a problem. All the marriages that we see which are collapsing, including even the Christian ones, there was no, they were not pursuing a single purpose. Because if we believe that God has called us to a purpose, the way we live is different. The way we talk is different. The way we relate to each other is different. The purpose becomes big, bigger than all of us, and we all contribute our parts and work towards it. Because even when we make mistakes within the context of the marriage, we are quick to forgive or easier to forgive because we see the overarching purpose of God hanging over the marriage. And we'll say to myself, I'm not going to leave this union because maybe my wife has done this when I can see that there's an ultimate purpose of God. So I'll forgive so that we can all work together to achieve that common purpose. So it's so important. It says to dress it and to keep it. To dress it and to keep it. And when the woman came, he didn't give any other purpose because he had already given the original purpose of the union to the man. To dress the garden and to keep the garden. It's so important. I always tell young men that when you jump onto a train that is broken, that is not going anywhere. I tell young women rather. If you jump onto a train that is broken down and that's not going anywhere, even when you sit on the train, it will still not go anywhere. What do I mean by that? If the man is not purpose-driven, if the man doesn't have clearly defined goals and objectives in life that he's pursuing, when you join and you marry him, he's not going to have it because you are joined. Ensure that there is a vision. Ensure that there is a purpose. And so that you can find your role in it. When he made the woman, he says, I'll make him a help that is meat. Now, God took the man out of the, work, the, the place he had made, placed the, the man in the garden in purpose and says, you work it and you preserve it. And then he brings the woman and he says, the woman is supposed to help you work it and preserve it. Today, I want to ask, what is the ultimate purpose of your union? We must have conversations about it. We must ask ourselves as couples, what is the ultimate purpose of our union? Why are we together? Why is, why, why, why is God leading us on this journey? These are relevant, pertinent questions that we may ask. Because in a marriage, as far as the purpose is concerned, the man is the vision bearer and the woman is the vision protector. Now, we must understand this. So let's look at an example. Let's go to 
um, Genesis chapter 26, I believe. Genesis 25, verse 19 uh, to 23. Let's see an example there. Genesis 25, 19 to 23. This is a story of Isaac and Rebekah. Let's see something there. And I read from verse 19, the Bible says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac begat, uh, Abraham begat Isaac. And then verse 20, it says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. It says, The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah conceived. Take note of that. The vision was not, uh, the conception of the vision did not originate from the woman. It originated from the man. That is, the children who were born in the womb. It wasn't Rebekah who went to pray. It was Isaac who went to pray. And the Bible says, after Isaac had saw the face of the Lord, Rebekah conceived. In other words, the, the vision became clear. They saw that this is the vision that God wants us. But who was the vision bearer? It was the man. Who was the originator of the vision? It was the man. But that's not the end of the story. When you continue, it says, And the children struggled within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I like this? Like this? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now notice, Isaac was the one who prayed and the vision was made plain. He was a vision bearer. But the one who went to find out the details of the vision so that she can protect the vision and preserve the vision was Rebekah. And so when he continues, he says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Oh, Jesus. He says, The elder shall serve the younger. Isaac conceived the vision. But the one who saw the details of the vision, God's vision, God's purpose for their union was Rebecca. Isaac knew nothing about it. How do we know this? When he was about to die, he told Esau, go and you know, get me venison. Let me eat and let me bless you and let me die. But Rebekah, who was the one who was observing the vision for, so that it would be preserved, what did she do? She prayed. She inquired of the Lord as well. And the Lord told her, this is the details of the vision. And what happened? Both of them played their role. Isaac conceived the vision. Rebekah protected the vision. And it was through that vision that Jesus came onto the earth. So we need to understand that the woman, the man is the vision bearer and the woman is the vision protector. So the woman has a role to play. And that's why most of the women have better discerning abilities than men. Because a man sees things in a monolithic sense. That is, it's a unit, but a woman sees things in more detail. Men have panoramic view and the women have more a detail or drill down view of issues. Women look into it. It's not that they are inquisitive, that they like gossiping. It's their nature. It helps them to probe and to see, lay everything bare so that it's very clear. So the woman must be prayerful. The man must be prayerful. But the man's praying is so that the vision will come into existence, will work it. But the woman's praying is so that the vision will be preserved. So the women are the protector and the men are the workers. It's so important. They work hand in hand. 
They work hand in hand. So the marriage or the union must have a, a purpose or a, a common vision that you are pursuing. So ask yourself, why are we together? What is our purpose? Why did the Lord bring us together? Why am I from, you know, Cape Coast somewhere? And she is from, you know, BA somewhere. How did God connect us together? Why did God connect us together? There must be a purpose. And we must find that purpose. And that is a clear sign. When you are pursuing that purpose, that the marriage is a godly marriage. Because you believe that the purpose is God-given. And if it's God-given, then it means that as you are pursuing a God-given purpose, it, makes, it means that the marriage is a godly marriage. God-centered marriage or Christ-centered marriage. Amen. The final point in the characteristics of a godly marriage is that it is a fruitful union. It is a fruitful union. So let me go over, recap the first three points. The first one is that it's a holy union. The second one is that it's a growing union. The third one is that it's a purpose-driven union. And the final one is that it is a fruitful union. It is a fruitful union. We must understand this very clearly. It is a holy union. It is a growing union. It is a purpose-driven union. And the last one, it is a fruitful union. And let's see what the scripture says uh, to that effect. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verse 28 uh, to 31. Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28 to 31. And we must understand this. The marriage must be fruitful. Um, fruitful, of course, in terms of having kids, it must be fruitful. It doesn't matter whether they are natural or not. If you adopt kids into the spiritual covering of your marriage, they possess your spiritual DNA, spiritual characteristics. They are your children. As far as heaven is concerned, they are your children. So the marriage must be fruitful, I mean, in the sense of bearing kids, whether it's natural or, you know, not your natural children, it's still a fruitful marriage. But fruitfulness is a goal of God for every union. And one clear sign that it's a godly marriage is that it's a fruitful union. You must bear fruit. You must be fruitful. If you are not fruitful, something is wrong. If there is no clear sign of the product or fruits of your union, something is very wrong. And we, might, we will see that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 29, 30. The Bible says, And God blessed them. And God said unto them, the first word, Be fruitful. The first divine instruction to the couple is be fruitful. Everything else came later. The first divine utterance to a man and a woman is be fruitful. Now that means that a marriage must be fruitful. If the marriage is not fruitful, there is going to be confusion. If the marriage is not fruitful, there is going to be dissatisfaction. The reason why some men get to a place where they call midlife crisis is that the marriage stops bearing fruit. The marriage is not fruitful anymore. And so the wildness of their heart begins to look for other things. <laughs> but if the marriage is fruitful, the man is not going to look anywhere. When I say fruit, what do I mean? Of course, naturally, the marriage must be fruitful naturally. You must give birth naturally. But then... The pursuit of your common purpose 
should begin to bear fruit of satisfaction in your heart. What I mean by that is that there should be clear sign of things that you are doing as, as your contribution to the church, as your contribution to the society, as your contribution to people's lives. Your fruits must be evident. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, you must become a pastor. No. Your fruit must be evident. You know, what, like, the, the kind of people that you are helping to grow spiritually, the kind of people that you are helping materially, financially, the kind of people that you are helping emotionally, you know, the fruits of your union must be there for your eyes to see. If it's ministry, what are, where are your children that you are growing? If it's a specific calling, where, what, where is that fruit? Because the sight of the fruit is what is going to encourage you to pursue more. You know, when you have kids and you see that your kids are beautiful, you are motivated to have more children. <laughs> hey, pray, man, praise the Lord. So when you see that your union is bearing fruit and you can see the fruits, you are encouraged to do what you are doing more. You are encouraged to pray. You are encouraged to fast. You are encouraged to invest. You see, you, the encouragement goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you push more and more. You progress more and more. And you increase more and more. It says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Praise God. And then 29 says, Behold, I have, I have given every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of, fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. What is he saying? He says, And God bless them. The Lord is saying that everything that you need to have a fruitful union, He has blessed you with already. You know, he's not now going to bless your union or our union. Our unions are blessed already. We are blessed. But then we must begin to be fruitful. After blessing them, his first instruction was be fruitful. In other words, don't let the blessings be in vain. Invest the blessing in people. Invest the blessing in the kingdom. Invest the blessing blessings in things I will show you so that there will be an increase. There has to be a clear sign of fruitfulness. I want to ask you, what, is, what fruits are you bearing in your marriage? How many people can say that their lives have been changed by your union? How many people can say that they have been blessed by your union? How many people can say that their lives have been turned around by your union? How many people can beat their chest and say that, but for your union, I would not know Christ? How many can beat their chest and say, but for your union, I would have been in the same place and not know God? How many people can say, but for your union, I would have been somewhere in the village, you know, not knowing what to do. But because of your union, I have been brought from the village and now I am able to, you know, make ends meet. I'm able to, I've become educated. How many can say that? That, these are clear signs of a union that is fruitful. Of course, if it's a marriage that is centered on God, the ultimate fruit that we must bear is souls. Meaning that we must influence people for Christ. Where is that fruit? If it's a godly union, where are those who are saying that their lives have been blessed because of your union and that they love Jesus more? 
that their hearts were turned away, but now their hearts have been turned to the Father. That is the ultimate fruit. Where are those? Where are the souls your, your union has won for Christ and your, our union have, what you call it, matured in Christ? Where is the fruit? That is a clear sign of a godly marriage. That is a clear sign of a God-centered marriage. That is a clear sign that the marriage is working. If not, there is a problem. If not, the, 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 the marriage is not a unit anymore. If not, you, are, you don't have a common purpose. If not, you are not growing. A holy marriage, a growing marriage, a purpose-driven marriage is a fruitful marriage. The only evidence that all the first three are in existence is seen in the fruits that you are bearing. What problems are your marriage solving in society? What problems are your marriage addressing in people's lives? That is the fruit that your union is bearing. And we must be fruitful. If we are not fruitful, there is a problem. Because the instruction he gave, the first instruction he gave them after blessing them was be fruitful. So being fruitful is not optional. It's an instruction. It's a command from the Father. And we must yield to it so that we will be fruitful. Hallelujah. God bless you so much. I'll leave the rest for contributions and then questions. So these are the four characteristics of a godly marriage. Number one, it's a holy union. Number two, it is a growing union. Number three, it's a purpose-driven union. And number four, it's a fruitful union. God bless you so much. Praise God. And so the final part is, uh, we talked about what is a godly marriage. We looked at what are the characteristics of a godly marriage. And sorry, we are looking at what are some of the ingredients of a godly marriage. In other words, uh, what comes together to make the marriage godly. And so that we can describe them with all these characteristics. Uh, or what attitudes must we possess? Or what uh, fruit, in terms of the spiritual sense, must we bear to be able to have a holy union, to be able to have a growing union, to be able to have a purpose-driven union, and to be able to have a, what do you call it, a fruitful union. And it's so, so, so important that we understand uh, some of these things. So we'll look at Psalm 6. Uh, of course, seven given seven ingredients of uh, a godly marriage. It's so important that we need to understand these things. I believe, yeah. But I I know that we are Christians, and so we these things are part and parcel of us. But still, they have they ought to be said, so that just to make the whole uh, presentation complete, so that we understand uh, what to expect. Yeah, because sometimes. And marriages fail because we don't pay attention to uh, some of these things. And if you are truly a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, all these should be part of your personal pursuit of Jesus anyway. And so that's why I always say that it's, 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 it's impossible to be a good Christian and have a bad marriage. So usually if you have a bad marriage, <laughs> then it means something happened to your Christianity. Now, it, doesn't, it may be that a woman has something wrong with her Christianity. That's why the marriage went south or the man has something wrong with the christianity that's why the marriage went south or both 
But if the man and the woman are good Christians, meaning that they pursue what God says and they fear the Lord, they are never going to have a bad marriage. That's impossible. So let's see, what are the ingredients of a, some of the ingredients of a godly marriage? The first ingredient is, is a very obvious one. In fact, if you read Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, 22, 23, it breaks some of these things. It talks about love and then breaks uh, them into nine other characteristics. And all those things, I mean, if you possess, if you are truly living a life that Jesus wants, if you are truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's your Lord and He's your Master, if the, truly the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are engaging Him and following the Word, these things come naturally. They are part of you. Or you grow into them anyways. So the first one is love. It's love. Love is the first characteristic of a godly, uh, the first ingredient of a godly marriage. What, what, when I say love, what do I mean? There are different kinds of love. But the highest and the purest form of love is the agape love of God. And it's so important that we understand and understand that. The agape love of God. Uh, if you go to First John chapter three, and if we look at um, verse eighteen, First John chapter three verse eighteen, the Bible says, "My little children." This is uh, John the Revelator speaking to children he has raised. He says, "Let us not love in word, neither in tongue," he said, "but in deed and in truth." Now, this is a very deep scripture. Um, it can take a long a whole sermon to de deconstruct and, uh, and, and get the, the, the thrust of the message. But the summary is that it says, love must not be just words. Love must be seen in actions. But then it says, even in the actions, the actions must be guided by truth. And truth is Christ. Truth is the word of God. So in other words, all he's saying is that you can't say you love your wife when there's nothing to show for it. You can't say you love unless there is a corresponding activity to your confession of love. So he says, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, that is just by saying, but it should reflect in actions. If you say you love your wife, there are many things you would do for her. If you say you love your husband, there are many things you would do for him. And all these things, he says, should be guided by God's word. In this day and age, it's very difficult to be faithful, which is the next characteristic we look at. Very difficult, you know, for a man to be faithful, for a woman to be faithful. We have to be honest, it's not easy. Because there is this over-sexualization of the world. When you put, on, when you go to Facebook, you put on a TV, everywhere you go, there is this graphic um, or overt attempts to pump your mind with graphic imagery about sex. And so you are gradually, if you are not careful, being programmed to accept sex in a particular context. And before you realize, your heart is following, and before you realize, you are deviating from the path. And so love, if you say you truly love somebody, it should show in your actions. You can't say you love your wife and your heart is drifting after other women, you are quick to spend on other women more than you are to spend on your wife. There is no action that backs your love. So you can't just say, I love you. In fact, 
Saying I love you is important, but doing I love you is important, as someone will say, it's more important. Saying I love you is important, but doing I love you is more important. In other words, let your actions show that you truly love. The second ingredient is faithfulness, obviously. Faithfulness is the bedrock of every relationship. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is when our hearts are interlinked, you know, and we are focused on the purpose of the union. Our commitment is to each other and none other. That is faithfulness. Meaning that you have given your heart wholly to your wife and the wife has given her heart wholly to you. The Bible says in Mark chapter 10 verse 9, it says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So faithfulness begins with believing that the two of you have been brought together by God and your willingness to submit to the authority of the Father to ensure that the, the, the provisions of the union are there too. Meaning that what the word of God says about marriage, you respect and you do it. You are loyal to your wife. She's loyal to you. And when faithfulness breaks, when loyalty disappears, that is where you see all the confusion and everything disintegrates. Because the, the most precious ingredient in a marriage is trust. And when the trust is violated and broken, um, the marriage is doomed. So whenever you see couples who progress through some phases before they end a divorce, if you trace their roots, you see that there were doubts of faithfulness. In other words, you know, the trust was broken or was fragile or was disintegrating and gradually became disintegrated. And that's dangerous. The second one is Anna. 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 And when you go to Romans chapter 10, verse 19, the NIV says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Oh my goodness. Honor means high respect or high esteem. You see, it's so important we understand these things. Honor is key. Even in our relationship with God, the Bible says that we should sanctify the Lord in our hearts. In other words, give the Lord a place in your heart that you give no other thing even in your heart. And so the same when it talks about honor in terms of marriage, it means that your wife or your partner must occupy a place that no other person occupies. I often say that your, you must never discuss your wife or your husband with anyone. No, I, I always say, personally say that my wife is my business, no other person's business. So I have never had any conversation about something my wife has done, something my wife has said with anyone, and it will never happen. The reason is that my wife is my business. It's no other person's business. If I have a problem with my wife, I tell her, this, this I didn't like it. If she has a problem with me, she should be able to say the same thing. So it means I have given her a place in my life that is of high esteem. And that place where we truly show honor is when we respect the opinions of one another. You know, in terms of marriage, sometimes in a, a, in a, in a traditional Ghanaian setup, we tend to belittle the opinions of women. We tend to think that, oh, like in a, what we say commonly in, uh, in Chi, about the farging. That is the most bushiatic, you know, Kurasiniatic statement I have ever heard in my life. It makes no sense. 
If you don't reason with your wife, who are you going to reason with? If you are together as one unit, you must reason together. So only means also appreciating your partner's opinion. When your partner gives an opinion about something, don't trivialize it. Don't rubbish it. Revere, treasure it. See wisdom in what has been said and take wisdom from it. A lot of men have made shipwreck of their lives, their businesses, because they fail to value the counsel of their wives. The same with women anyway. So have high respect in the house. Respect your wife. Let your wife also respect you. That is proof that there is honor in your heart in your heart for your wife. The third ingredient is humility. Oh my goodness. Humility is so, so, so important. My God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, the Bible says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. One of the greatest, you know, blessings for every union is when both are humble. You see, when you are humble, one proof that you are humble is that you are willing to be wrong for your wife to be right. Or you are willing to be wrong for your husband to be right. Even in a conversation, when you're having the conversation and it looks like you are wrong and the person is right, one test of humility is that you are willing to accept for the time of the conversation that I'm wrong and that person is right. That is a true test of you know, humility. A friend of mine puts it this way that when you are right, keep quiet. When you are wrong, admit it. That is a true test of humility in a marriage. That when you don't insist that you are right, when you don't enforce that you are right, that is true proof that you are humble. When you lord your rightness over the other, when you want to say that, you see, I told you, I told you, I told you, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. You are lording your rightness over your spouse. You are not humble. A lot of times when you when you, you exhibit that humble nature, the other partner will follow suit. It's not a competition. It's a union. We are not competing. We are one. And if we are one, then we, are, we, we want the same thing. So I may express an opinion that may not be right. But it doesn't mean that if you are right, you should lord it over me. Say that I don't have sense. No. Rather you say that, well, we are all learning. You know, I know I'll make mistakes. I know you make mistakes. But together, we are growing as a unit. That's a very important disposition of the heart to have. Humility, humility, humility. And you can only be humble if you are submitted to God's word. If the word of God is a final authority in your life, it's easy to be humble. But when your heart does not have, you know, submission to God's word, it's very difficult to be humble. So humility is a key ingredient. The next point, the fourth point, is patience. Oh my goodness. It's so important. It says, by completely, <coughs> be completely humble, <coughs> sorry, and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It says, we are in love, but we should bear with one another. He says, how we are going to accomplish that? Two things go together. Humility and gentleness. And then patience. You must be patient in a marriage. 
Listen, we all came from different backgrounds. <clears throat> we are all raised differently. We all love different things. We all have different favorite colors. We all have different favorite foods. Things that excite you may not be the things that excite your partner. One thing that will bring your unit together and make it strong is patience. If you are patient with the person. Because the person is learning to fit. It's like you were brought up differently. And I was also brought up differently. And we have come together on this journey of marriage. And we want to be one. If we don't learn to be patient, we will never become a perfect fit. In the garden, he created a man outside the garden. created a woman inside the garden. The environment, the ambience are different. Women possess different characteristics. Men possess different characteristics. But when you come together as a unit, you must be patient to adjust. The man must learn to adjust to the woman, and the woman must learn to adjust to the man. And that takes a great deal of patience. You see, if you want to, if you're a man, you want to really test that you are patient, go with your wife to do to the market or to the shop when she hasn't gotten a place planned. That's a real test <laughs> whether you are a patient person or not. Because when women do not have a list, even when they have a list and they go to the market, they, they walk their length and breadth of the whole market to get their list and to add some to it. And when they ha don't have a list, that is worse. That's a true test of your patience. Amen. So patience is very important. It helps you to develop the ability to allow the person to grow. Because the person will say the wrong things. The person will do the wrong things in a marriage. But you create room. Patience is the ability to create room for the other person to grow. And the ability for you also to you know, appreciate the other person also so that you grow. When that is not in the relationship, there is always chaos. Amen. And then my favorite... The fifth point is understanding. Understanding. First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the Bible says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Wow! It says, In the same way, husbands give honor to your wife. This is an instruction of God. He says the man must honor his wife, appreciate her, hold her in high esteem. She's your most important treasure on the earth. Not even the kids, it's your wife. So honor her, treasure her. Let her know that you appreciate her. And it says treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Now, let me say this, that if God does not give you an understanding heart, you can never live with a woman. You can never live with a woman. You see, most men, our minds are one-dimensional. We, we, we can live how we live and we'll never alter how we live, but women cannot live that way. For example, if a woman buys a dress, she'll purchase accessories to go with a dress. The bag must match, the shoe must match, the earrings must match. Now we have the mask, the, the, the masks must match. You know, everything must match. <laughs> so women are different from us. And you need to have an understanding heart to be able to relate to a woman. The same way men do things booga booga. When things happen, our response is always swift. We are not too discerning to be patient, to wait, to analyze, to be able to look at things in a holistic sense. So if you're a woman and you don't understand men, what happens? 
you say, oh, you are too known, you are too known. You are... No, but it's not that the person is too knowing, but that's how men are. So you, the, the purpose of understanding is so that you can, you know, be able to communicate, reach the person so that you can help the person alter the way the person is. Men can always change. But if the, but the one who changes the most is the man of understanding. So if the man understands a woman, the man will know that I have to be patient with my wife because women are different from men. It, it, it even shows up in, in, in our sex lives. Women take their time to warm up into the sex act and to climax. Men, she, boom. The man moves from zero to ten in like two seconds. The woman moves from zero to ten in two minutes. And these two are supposed to make love. How do that? How does do they accomplish it? One person must patience must come in, but the man must understand that women operate differently, and the woman must understand that men also operate differently. If we do not, you realize that we can enjoy. You know, the union. Understanding is what binds us together. Understanding is what unites all the attributes together. Without being understanding or without having understanding, we cannot have an, uh, the unit working as God intended. And then the last one is unity. Unity. I'll read a scripture on it. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. In perfect unity. So it means that you must be united. When it comes to unity, it means that you must present a singular front. When you have children and one is disciplining, the other must not oppose. You must be seen to be one. When you are communicating, it must be one. When you go outside and your husband is making a point, don't say something contrary to it, even though you may disagree. And your wife is making a point, don't say something contrary to what your wife is saying, even though you must disagree. Wait till you come home and you say, Honey, how you said this, I did not like it. I wish you would have said it this way. Then it means you are always united. Unity is what preserves the union. If you are not united, you cannot fight. If you are not united, you cannot face if you are not united, the enemy will have you easily. If you are not united, you will not look out for each other. You must have one mind. You must have one body. You must have one. You become one soul because that is oneness. You are one. Amen. <laughs> I just love the scriptures, but you know, for want of time, I won't get into it. Maybe the questions and the discussions will bring it. So unity is the last attribute. God bless you so much. Amen. So I've brought the whole presentation to an end. If there are questions and contributions, we can go ahead and undo it. God bless us so much for this opportunity. Bye.